Our scripture reading this evening is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. Revelation 21, 9 through 27. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of God, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the walls thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, 
neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Dear congregation, we've been hearing of the great resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and been witnessing post-resurrection fruit. And a few weeks ago, we witnessed the ultimate resurrection fruit of the New Jerusalem, the city coming down from heaven, where there shall be no more sea and no more night. We looked at God's utopian new world, the new heavens and the new earth, the age to come. Now, this evening, we want to get closer and take a walk, as it were, with the Apostle John around this new city this capital city of God's new world, the new Jerusalem. I call it the capital city because, according to the Bible, it is the city of the great king. It is where God the king dwells. But in an ultimate sense, it is the only city. It's not just a capital city, but the only city. Because it comes down from God, and it fills the new heavens and fills the new earth. It's a vast, cosmopolitan city. Its inhabitants are countless from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. So tonight, we want to take a walk around the city and look at various aspects of it. And then God willing, from the last chapter in the Bible, the next time I have opportunity to preach from Revelation, we'll go to the very center of the heart of the city in the beginning of Revelation 22. And so our text is Revelation 21, the portion I read to you, 9 through 27. But I'll read again now just verses 9 and 10. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So our theme this evening is the new Jerusalem. We'll look at six things, the church's origin, the church's beauty, the church's invulnerability, the church's universality, the church's foundation, and the church's blessedness. The New Jerusalem will look at its origin, beauty, invulnerability, universality, foundation, and blessedness. Well, once again, we are obviously in the realm of symbolism here in the book of Revelation. An angel comes to John and says, come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carries John away into a great and high mountain in his vision. And John sees this holy Jerusalem, a great city. Now, this is obviously not the city that will 
descend from heaven and then come and fill Jerusalem and replace Jerusalem, as some people say, for a thousand years. Uh, That kind of literalness we've seen all through the book of Revelation does not make any sense. And besides, this is far too big of a city to do that. We're told that the city is 1,400 miles in every direction. In other words, it's half the size of the United States of America. It wouldn't begin to fit in little tiny Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem, however. This is the city of God. We are obviously, therefore, in the realm of symbolism. And John says, this is the Lamb's wife, the bride. I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife, verse 9 says. And then immediately he says, he showed me the great city. The city is the bride. The city is the Lamb's wife. The church triumphant. The glorified church of Jesus Christ married spiritually to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this passage, dear believers, we are not so much looking through a window as we are looking into a mirror. We are really seeing ourselves as we now are in principle, but much more as we shall be hereafter in perfection. We're not only spectators of this vision, but we are actually the spectacle itself. We are not merely going to the celestial city. If we're believers, we are the celestial city. For we are the bridegroom's wife. We are the bride. So you need to understand that as you read this chapter. This isn't something that just relates out there. It's something that you, dear believer, are. Together with the entire cosmopolitan living church all over the world. Now, as you notice in my points tonight, there are six main lines of thought that John develops in Revelation 21, 9 through 27, as he describes for us symbolically what this bride looks like. The first is, the church's origin, where she comes from. We actually saw that a bit in verse 2 last time. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see that same thing repeated now. He carried me away in a spirit, verse 10, to a great and high mountain, showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending, here's the same language, out of heaven from God. So John is at pains to tell us that the bride, the lamb's wife, is not a human institution. Not a man-made institution. Not the work of men's fingers. Not the work of man's free will. The bride is the work of Almighty God. She comes down from above. She comes down from heaven. She's not a mere human institution. Now, that's important for laying the foundation of this whole passage this evening. You see, so often people will say things like this. 
oh, well, there's been a spiritual growth in your church. I wonder, I wonder why that is. Uh, is there some uh, sociological factor? Is there some economic factor? Why was there a revival in the 1740s? Well, it must have been, you know, some kind of human factor involved. God doesn't work outside of means, of course, but we can't explain the Christian church in terms of sociology or economic conditions or human methodology or organization. The church comes from God, out of heaven. That's what makes her alive. She's the bride of the great bridegroom, the fruit of his work. And you see, that's what Jesus stressed with Nicodemus, of course, in their famous interview in John 3. Remember what he said to this very religious man? He said, Nicodemus, you have religion, basically he was saying to him, but you don't have me. You don't have Christ or Christianity. You must be born again. And in the original Greek, you must be born from above. It's not enough, Nicodemus, to have your religion. Your religion may have some good outward characteristics to it, but it's not going to save you. You've got to be born from above. And you see, this is what every true bride of Christ recognizes and comes to believe that the only reason she's brought from her, from her depravity into communion with Jesus and becomes a bride for, for the great glorious day part of that wonderful new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, is all because she's born from above and she's gathered in from above and she's wrought upon from above. It's all the work of the triune God. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 1, so powerfully. It pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. Well, Paul, where did you get your Christianity from? Where did you learn it? Who passed it on to you? Oh, Paul says, it's just a gift from above. It pleased God to reveal his son in me. And I submit to you tonight that this is a tremendous encouragement for us as a church. A tremendous encouragement for every one of the 22 ministries run by this church. Because if those ministries depend, those ministries of outreach and evangelism or ministries within our own congregation depend in any way upon any minister, any office bearer, any volunteer, any layperson, we are doomed to failure. But because these ministries depend upon God working from above, and his word does not return to him void as he has promised. There is help and hope for every one of them. You see, the great need of our day is not the easy believism of mass evangelism, but it is for churches to come down from heaven, as it were, from above. What we are in need of is genuine, dependent church workers church planters who understand the New Testament way of evangelizing. That it's not human compulsion or persuasion or man-made institutions or human methodology or psychological conversions, but what we need is God to come down from heaven above.
Now, the second thing we're told about the church in this passage is not only her origin, but her beauty. Her beauty. Keep walking through the text with me. Verses 10 and 11 now. Carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Show me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of God, out of heaven from God. And notice this, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious. Even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So John looks. And he sees in his vision a stone clear as crystal in the distant skies, a jasper stone. A stone that's not only lit up, but somehow in his vision, the very light that is reflected in that stone is the light of the weighty, momentous glory of God. The glory of God is shining through that stone. And John is amazed at that. That the bride, the lamb's wife, is a reflector of the glory and the beauty of God. And later he comes back to this theme. You notice that in verses 18 through 21. And he says that this building of the walls of this city has all kinds of various precious stones. The walls are encrusted with precious stones. He says every gate is a massive pearl. The buildings and the streets, even the spaces between, are all transparent gold. Could you get anything more beautiful? Everything gold, and everything beautiful and full of color. You know, the world says Christianity is boring and and dry and dull. And, well, Christians say the world is boring and dry and gray and drab and dull compared to the glory and the beauty of God and the beauty of belonging to Him. This is beautiful. What does the world have that matches this? The red sardius, the white jasper, the green emerald, the blue sapphire, and so on. And all these precious stones are embedded in the walls, in the gates, in the foundations, and they're all lit up. And the gold shadows of it, as it were, the gold light from, from the golden city pervades it all, and it is all suffused by the light of the glory of God. It's incredibly beautiful. Actually, it reminds you of the colors of the rainbow, doesn't it? This is a bona fide rainbow city, as it were. And let me explain why. You remember earlier in the book of Revelation, after John, after the vision, he had the vision of the seven churches, he looked and saw a throne in heaven. You remember that? And he saw the lamb in the midst of the throne. And the throne and the one on the throne were encircled, you recall, by a rainbow. And we saw at that time what that rainbow meant, that it wasn't a meteorological Phenomenon, but it was a theological phenomenon. It's a token of God's covenant, His promises, His faithfulness. Today, of course, that symbol is either taken for granted or it's grossly abused, but actually, we cannot allow anyone to rob us of the glory and the beauty of God's theological, promising, covenantal teaching in the rainbow. It's his promise, not just that he will flood the earth no more. It's the bow of the covenant, the covenant faithfulness 
of God. And so what John actually sees, when he sees all this color, all the colors of the rainbow coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, he sees that the bride is permeated with the covenant, with the covenant faithfulness of God. He sees that the bride is filled with the truths of God, God's sovereign grace, God's covenant faithfulness. The bride is a rainbow city, sparkling, shining with the light and the colors of the rainbow. It's just impregnated with God's grace, God's promises, God's covenant. And you see, you can't have a rainbow unless you have, on the one hand, storm clouds, and on the other hand, sunshine. And we need to remember that the whole reason for the existence of this city is because there's a place called Calvary where the storm clouds of God's wrath and the sunshine of his mercy met in the person of Jesus Christ. There on those Roman gallows, he took and bore in his own body the outpoured wrath of a holy God. The storm of God's anger broke around his head and raged in his soul on that cross. And through it, the sunshine of God's love and mercy resulted for all those who by grace bemoan their sins and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this rainbow city, this beautiful city, this city full of color and light, full of the glory of the promises of God, full of covenant and truth, full of reminders of covenant mercy, this city is the fruit of him who endured the storm clouds to bring the sunshine, even the resurrected Lord of glory. He's called in this chapter, the Lamb. The Lamb who gave his life. And so why do people, why does the bride come into the city? Why is she that city? Why? Who are these that have come in? Remember that back in Revelation 7? And the answer is these are they who have come out of great tribulation, great storm clouds, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Dear child of God, you will follow Jesus through the storms and through the sunshine, but you will be made white in the blood of the Lamb in that day, and you will be exquisitely beautiful as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly, we see here not only the church's origin and beauty, but her invulnerability. Please follow on with me as we turn to verse 12 now. The city had a wall, great and high, around her, we're told. In verse 17, you notice that? We're told that that wall is 144 cubits thick. You remember a cubit is 18 inches, right, boys and girls? So that's a wall that's over 200 feet thick. That's a remarkable wall. Now, the city has magnificent defenses, of course, and that's the point. It's got a great, thick, high wall 
all around it. It's impregnable. It's invulnerable. No enemy can ever destroy this city. This is obvious. No enemy can get into this city. This is obvious. Now, of course, there's a sense in which the church in glory doesn't need a big high wall around it. There's a sense in which the church in glory doesn't need any defending. In verse 25, we're told that the gates of the city are left open. There's no danger of anyone coming in or going out that would be an enemy because, well, all the enemies are in hell. And perhaps, perhaps you're old enough to remember a time being brought up in this city or another city where you didn't bother to close your back door or lock it. or Even at night, you kept it unlocked. Even when you went on a vacation, you kept it unlocked. I remember when I first went to Sioux Center, Iowa, and we took a few days vacation. And uh, someone found out I actually locked my doors when I left home. They, they, they laughed at me. What are you locking your doors for? There's no danger around here whatsoever. Well, in heaven, there's no danger. So the gates are always open. That's just a symbol saying there's no danger. There's no enemy. There's no temptation. There's nothing that can come in that can create any havoc or or any evil. No one's going to sneak in through the gates under the cover of darkness. There's no darkness. All these things are finished. The gates are open. That's good to be reminded of that tonight. The bride has no more fears. No more negatives. But at the same time, it's great to be reminded of the invulnerability of the city. The thickness of the walls, the fortress, reminds us of the contrast between paradise lost and paradise regained. Between the first creation and the new creation. You see, when Jesus Christ, the second Adam, came to the rescue, he didn't come just to return us to square one, to where the first Adam was. He didn't just restore what the first Adam had undone. He does much more. There's always a how much more about the gospel, isn't there? Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Isaac Watts puts it so beautifully in that great hymn of his, in him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Adam was on probation. There was always the possibility of Adam falling. There is no possibility whatsoever that you or I, if we're truly in Christ, will ever be separated from him. That's the point of the walls. You see, there are lots of unanswered questions in the Bible. Unanswered questions about how the ancient serpent somehow got into the Garden of Eden in the first place. When's evil? Is a question we cannot fully grasp. But why did he get into the Garden? Because the walls weren't thick enough or high enough. But around the heavenly Jerusalem, around the Church of Christ, there's a high wall, a thick wall. It means there's no possibility of any enemy ever getting into the new Jerusalem. I am persuaded, says Paul, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
If you're a Christian sitting here tonight in truth, you are better off than Adam was pre-fall in paradise. And you're safer because you're in the second Adam. You're the lamb's wife. And you're surrounded by a thick, impenetrable, high wall merited by his blood. And no serpent is going to come slithering into that new heaven and that new earth. You are safe forever in the arms of your bridegroom. But then fourthly, we see here also the universality of this church. It's a cosmopolitan city, I said. Look at that in verses 12 and 13. The city had a wall, great and high, had 12 gates. At the gates, 12 angels, messengers, and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. These three gates, north, south, west, three gates each. Now, this is, again, lots of symbolism, but it, there's, a, there's a beautiful meaning here. Actually, the whole Bible is, is brought in to these verses. Uh, you notice that on these gates, there's, there's writing on each one of them. And written on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And those gates and those names, however, are on different sides of the city looking out, anticipating, expectant. And there are messengers standing at the mouth of each gate. You see, this is all symbolic of what the whole Bible is telling us about God's dealings with Abraham and the nation of Israel. God entered into a covenant with the Jewish people, and he said to Abraham, and thy seed shall all, all the nations of the earth be blessed. In Old Testament times, dear friends, the Jewish nation was the custodian, the guardian, the trustee of the gospel. And that's why it's so special. That's why it was hemmed in by the Mosaic law. That's what Paul was arguing for in Galatians 3 and 4. And that's why the name of each tribe is written upon the gates of this city. To Israel belong the covenants and the promises, says Paul, Ephesians 2. The gospel is a Jewish gospel in its origin. We have its roots in the Old Testament in the covenant with Abraham. And yet at the same time, the blessing of Abraham, says Paul, in the New Testament age is now come to the Gentiles. And so these gates with the names of Israel inscribed upon them face towards the north, the south, the east, and the west. They face in every direction. They face all mankind, all types of people, all conditions of people. And they shall come from every nation and every tribe and every language. Thanks be to God's work, God's covenant work in Abraham. And so what we need to ask ourselves today as a church, of course, is to what extent do we represent that true church? Revelation 21 here presents us with the ideal church, the ideal bride. This is how the church will be. This is how God sees the church. It has gates everywhere. South, north, east, west. We need to ask ourselves, does our congregation 
really have gates going in all directions? Are we a comprehensive church in that sense? Is there a welcome here for everyone, no matter who they are? People from all backgrounds and languages and races and socioeconomic statuses and histories of sin. Are we facing every direction, seeking to win sinners by God's grace to the Savior? What a picture this bride is of the canons of Dort teaching that the gospel must be preached indiscriminately to all men, all types of people, conditions, without any reservation. It's a free gospel. There's access tonight. Unsaved sinner, also for you, also tonight, the gate of the gospel goes open in your direction. And Jesus Christ says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Right now, the door is open. You don't need a roadmap or a GPS to find your way to the Savior. In the preaching, he finds his way to you. And he throws open the door. And he says, there's one gate open. There's one voice that will hear your prayer. I am the door. I am the voice. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. We thank God that in this church, there is so much outreach in all directions. But in your heart, Do every one of us really long for that? Long when long for the universal church, the great day from every tribe, nation, people. Long that that would be more represented here in our midst. Long that this church would overflow with godly, saved people, but also with needy sinners looking for salvation from the south, from the west, from the east, from the north. You see, that's the calling of this church. That's our mission statement. By the Spirit's grace, we disciple believers in Christ and evangelize unbelievers for God's glory. That's the ethos of the apostolic church. That's the fulfillment of the bride, the Lamb's wife, in the great day. And that's the goal we must pursue depending on God's grace here below. And fifthly, we see here the church's foundations, the church's foundations. Look at that. You might be saying, what? I understand the church's origin, the beauty, the invulnerability, the universality, but how on earth can you see foundations? They're hidden. Well, John saw the foundations. That's what our text tells us. And he saw the foundations because he was standing underneath the city. The city was coming down. City, in his, in his vision, half the size of the United States of America. was coming down. Huge, huge city. I'm told in verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Think about that. That's an amazing statement. Here's John standing on a great high mountain. The city's coming down, and he's looking up. As the city gets nearer, 
He sees these massive foundation stones, precious stones. Each of those stones, there's a huge name written of the 12 apostles. What must it have been for John? Lonely John on the Isle of Patmos. To see his own name written in one of those stones. He was an apostle of the Lamb. He was one of the twelve. He was the only one surviving yet. All the others had gone on to be with the Lord. What an encouragement for John. The only apostle surviving. Exiled on Patmos. And God gives him this marvelous vision. And as John stands and he sees his own name on a stone, I think he must have thought, It's as if God is saying to me, John, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. These are not wasted days on Patmos. This suffering you're going through is worthwhile, John. In your life and ministry, do you know what you're doing? You're laying the foundation for this bride, the Lamb's wife. A tremendous encouragement for an aged apostle. And still today, that is true of the church of Jesus Christ. No, we're not apostles today. Our names are not written on the foundation stones. But what an encouragement that when we build, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, upon the foundations of the apostles, when we build upon that, God will use us to add stones, precious stones, to the new Jerusalem. He will use elders, deacons, those who have been working, those who will be installed next week. He'll use ministers. He'll use lay people in their various evangelistic efforts to lay new stones in the building. Now, there's a reason why the apostles' names are written on those stones, and not just Jesus Christ. You see, today there are all kinds of people around the world who say they believe in Jesus Christ, sex and cults and all kinds of things. They say Christ is all we need. Christ is the foundation of the church. You need nothing else. But they embrace a Christ who has very little to do with the Bible. They embrace an imaginary Christ. But what God says in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And the apostles built their theology on that cornerstone. And they laid the foundations of the New Testament church in apostolic testimony. How do you know if you have the real Christ, yes or no? You have the real Christ if you have the Christ of apostolic testimony. And so the names of the 12 apostles are on that foundation. Not because there's anything in them because God used them to write the New Testament and God used them to spread the truth and lay the foundation of true Christianity and proclaim the true Christ. That's why the apostles are unique and why there are no more apostles. And you see, Roman Catholicism has never understood this. And so when Peter said, Thou art the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, they said, Well, God's going to build his church upon Peter. And so we have to 
say Peter's the first pope, and from then on there's been popes, and God builds on popes. That's a bunch of nonsense. It wasn't on Peter himself. It was on the confession Peter made. It's not on John himself or the apostles themselves. It's on the testimony they gave. I will build my church on your confession, Peter, upon this rock, the rock of your confession, Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will build. And you see, that's how we must build still today. We must build upon the confession, the apostolic testimony that this book contains. Not that people feel or that people twist and make a Jesus of their own making. What does apostolic doctrine teach? That is the truth about Jesus Christ. And therefore, their names are written on the stone. The church has a solid foundation in the word of the living God. And then finally, John talks about the church's blessedness. Then in the final verses, John speaks about the church's blessedness. He says in verse 22, I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The sheer magnitude of God and the Lamb being the temple It's just overwhelming when you do a little bit of mental arithmetic. Notice what we're told here. Verse 16, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. This city is a perfect cube. 1,400 miles wide. 1,400 miles broad. 1,400 miles tall. This city is huge huge, but it has no need for a temple. No need for a temple. But there's always been a temple. There's always been a temple, hasn't there? There was a holy place and a most holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. There's a holy place in the tabernacle in the wilderness. There's a church today. Not the same as the temple, but the temple today, of course, is in the hearts of believers. But now in heaven, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. What is John talking about? Well, for one thing, he's saying length, breadth, height is all the same. It's a perfect cube so was the holy place. It was a perfect cube. And we know the holy place, the cube in the holy place represented the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal. So, John, picking up on this Old Testament languages, so this is the temple of the bride, of the new Jerusalem. There's no need for an earthly temple building in heaven because the triune God is the temple of glory. The perfect cube is symbolic of the perfection of the temple that is contained in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what John is saying is that this huge, huge city 
with its millions upon millions upon millions of inhabitants that no man can number. The bride, the lamb's wife, is one big, most holy place where the saints of God worship God forever, joining Him, knowing Him, living to Him, delighting in Him, forever basking in His smile, forever feasting in His presence, forever bathing in His glory. Heaven, as Jonathan Edwards said, is a world of love. Is a world in which God Himself is the temple. You see then why John saw no temple? Because it's all temple. No matter where you go in the new heavens and the new earth, no matter how far you travel in whatever direction, you cannot travel out of the loving, worshipful presence of God and the Lamb. That's what he's saying. You can never lose a moment of God's presence in this city because it is all temple. It is all the most holy place. There's no place in this city where God's Shekinah presence of glory and God's intimate communion doesn't shine. God dominates the horizon to the east, to the west, to the north, and to the south. There'll be no Sabbaths in this city, no Lord's Days in this city, no stated times of worship in this city, no ministers to preach the gospel in this city, no means of grace in this city, because it will be all temple, it will be all most holy, it will all be Shekinah glory in and through the triune God himself. We will all be, dear believers, beyond the veil in the immediate presence of the God of love. And we will never lose a moment of his sacred, worshipful, joyful, overwhelming presence. We will behold the Lamb face to face. You will be his bride. Dr. R.C. Sproul has told us, told us the story that he has a sickly father. He had a sickly father. As a young man, he often had to almost carry his father to reach the, the dining room table, the dinner table. And after his father died, Dr. Sproul would often dream about his father and his needy condition. But one night, he had a very unusual dream. He dreamed that he and his father were both in heaven. And his father had no more infirmities, but was fully energized. And in his dream, Dr. Spohl told us, he said to his father, Dad, take me. Take me to where I can see the glory. And his father looked at him in his dream and said, Son, it's all glory. It's all glory. It's everywhere glory. You see, that's the point John's making. There's no temple because it's all temple. In the Bible, God always had a temple. The Garden of Eden, in a sense, was a temple at the beginning. That's where God met with man. Then when the people were wandering in the wilderness, God gave them a little temple, a makeshift tabernacle. They could fold away and carry with them. When they became city dwellers, he gave them a temple, a building in which his glory would be revealed. In the climax of his glorious revelation, he gave his son to be the new temple. And now, 
Now, now, in this heavenly world, God himself and the Lamb fill the temple. Like Isaiah saw the train of the presence and the glory of God filling the temple. This is what it shall be like in the great day. Every corner of heaven, as it were, shall be suffused with the glory of God. It shall all be temple. And at last, at last, dear child of God, your worship shall not be hindered. There shall not be one wandering thought that shall come into your mind. Your worship shall be whole-souled, eternally perfect as an everlasting priest and an everlasting king unto God. This is the bride, the Lamb's wife, John says. And so tonight, we've walked with John. As he says in verse 9, Come, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. We've walked around the city. Next time, we're going to go to the heart of the city. I'll look at the center of what really lies at that heart in the opening words of Revelation 22. But I need to ask you before I close tonight, do you belong to this city? Do you have citizenship papers to enter the heavenly city? And that citizenship paper is the blood passport of Jesus Christ. This blood must be the foundation of your rainbow, of your life, of your future glory. And that blood passport you may know if you have because it will bear fruit in your life. As Paul says in Philippians 3, for our conversation is in heaven from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you belong to this city, you long to be in that city. And dear friends, if this is not your life, if this is not your city, if what I said tonight just seems like so much empty symbolism and your heart's not taken up with it, you need the lamb. You need the lamb if you're going to get into that city. You notice what the closing verse of this chapter says, verse 27, There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the only people that will get into the city. Unrepentant sinners will live the life of the lie, will remain in their sin, will remain unrepentant, will not get into the city. They will not be registered in the Lamb's book of life. What a tragedy. What a tragedy if you will have sat under the gospel all your life and be excluded on the judgment day from the new Jerusalem because you refused to abandon your defiling, abominating, lying sins, verse 27 says, and because you refused to surrender all your sins at the feet of the Lamb of God who alone can take away your sins. You need the Lamb, the sacrificial, substitutionary, mediatorial, useful Lamb, the Lamb of God. Did you notice 
last time and this time that the name Jesus and the name Christ is not used in the whole chapter of Revelation 21. But the name the Lamb is used five times. It's about the Lamb. The Lamb. The Lamb. The Lamb. The Lamb. You need the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In the village of Domremy, France, there is a remarkable statement written in red ink across the page of an official record book. Taxes remitted for the maid's sake. Domremy was the birthplace of Joan of Arc. And the French were so grateful to her and her leadership against the English and her defeat of the English that they showed their gratitude in this way by honoring her birthplace and remitting for all time all the taxes that were due from that village for her sake because of what she had done for the country. Written, my dear friend, my dear God-fearing friend, written across the Lamb's book of life next to your name with all your liabilities and all your obligations to a holy God and his holy law is this, sins remitted for the Lamb's sake. That's what Paul was saying when he says, he's taken our sins, dear believer, and he's blotted them out, blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that were against us, taking them out of the way and nailing them to his cross. This is our hope. This is our refuge. This is our salvation. The lamb, the lamb's blood gives us membership. When that lamb's blood is embraced by spirit work faith in the book of the new Jerusalem, in the book of life, this is the evidence that our names are written there. And this is the lifestyle The Lamb's wife lives here below as she prepares for the new Jerusalem above. The lifestyle of repenting every day. Every day, fleeing to the Lamb's blood. Every day, taking refuge in the Lamb's blood. Anticipating the day when the sands of time will sink and she will enter into glory forever. So I close this sermon, I can't help but close it, with just a few quotations from that great poem that drawn from Rutherford's writing, the sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn I've longed for, the fair sweet morn awakes, dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love, The streams of earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mirthy dust expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, those seven deaths lay between. The lamb, the lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory Glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. But that he built a heaven of his surpassing love, a little new Jerusalem 
like to the one above. Lord, take me over the water, has been my loud demand. Take me to my love's own country, into Emmanuel's land. I've wrestled on towards heaven against storm and wind and tide, now like a weary traveler that leaneth on his guide. Amid the shades of evening, while sinks life's lingering sand, I hail the glory dawning from Emmanuel's land. Deep waters cross life's pathway, the hedge of thorns was sharp. Now these lie all behind me, oh, for a well-tuned harp. Oh, to join, hallelujah, with yon triumphant band who sing where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove, and aye, the dews of sorrow were lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided, I'll bless the heart that planned, when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Soon shall the cup of glory wash down earth's bitterest woes. Soon shall the desert briar break into Eden's rose. The curse shall change to blessing, the name on earth that's banned, be graven on the white stone in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I shall sleep sound in Jesus, filled with his likeness rise, to love and to adore him, to see him with these eyes. Between me and resurrection, but paradise does stand. And then, then for glory, dwelling in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but at my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Worship him forever. Amen. Gracious God, we thank Thee so much that Thou dost make a bride out of hell-worthy people to glory in thyself as the temple of heaven in Emmanuel's land. Prepare us for that place, please, Lord. Let this poor, poor, poor world vanish from our interest and our love And let us say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Jesus' sake, amen.